I'm Harry. I'm Nash. And this week, we're going all the way from the 19th to the 25th of February. And what are you diving deep into? Because I know that's <laughs> the phraseology that you, you love. Yeah, okay, deep. look, I'll admit that I do like to lean on that phrase quite a bit. But, you know, history, I feel like it's, um, you've got to submerge yourself in history, Harry. You've got to dive in deep to the deluge of history and pull Thank you. up the remnants Thank of you. the past and examine it in the cool light of day. You just explained what dive deep is by saying dive deep. It's like when you try and define something and you're like, I need to get a sonogram. What's a sonogram? Well, a sonogram is a sonogram. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> All right, okay. What are you speaking about this week, though? Tell so us. So this week, I'm exploring an event that happened on February 19, 19... 86. Mm. So there's this guy called Yul Brenner. Perhaps you've heard of him before. He's very famous. For those of you who are millennials who have never heard of Yul Brenner before, he was a big movie star back in the 1950s and 60s, most popular for his portrayal in The King, the King and I. King uh, and I. Uh, just a hint, he played the king, not yeah. the eye. Not the eye. Yeah. No. Um, although <laughs> if someone asked him, who did you play, Yul, he would say, I played the king very confusing very confusing, very confusing. so what did he do <laughs> so, in 1986 that, that aside in 1986 he delivered his last performance posthumously mm. uh, in a uh, which television means he campaign. died and then it was showed after his death yeah because you use big words that no one knows yeah thank you yeah yep. delivered his last performance posthumously yeah um warning about the dangers of cigarette smoking which is interesting because correct me if i'm wrong you're not wrong. I do have a morbid fascination with, with cigarette cigarettes. smoking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as a smoker, that's very interesting. <laughs> Mine has to do with one of my fascinations, which is the law. <laughs> what, breaking it? No, no, this is <laughs> adhering to the law. And in 1981, on February 20, two parents, they, they were their conviction was quashed. They were told they had not killed their daughter. Their daughter was killed by an animal. What animal? You have to wait and see. This is probably one of the biggest court cases to hit Australia since Michael Caton tried to save his home and his pool room. <laughs> the contents of his pool room. <laughs> yeah, and his ice cream, which was just dreaming. Oh. All right, well, let's um, dive in deep, as they say. <laughs> don't smoke. Whatever you do, just don't smoke. February 19, 1986. If you switch on your TV at this time in America on one of the major television networks, you're likely to see this ad. Mm. It's of a bald man in his 60s and he's speaking to someone off camera and he ends his speech with, if I could take back that smoking, if I could take back that smoking, we wouldn't be talking about any cancer. I'm convinced of that. So this man, he was Yule Brenner. Right, very famous guy. We spoke yeah. about him in the intro even. Yeah. Um, but was he dead at this point? Yes, he was actually dead at this point, which made wow. this ad that much more poignant and moving. It's like the movie with Heath Ledger after he died. The the Dark Knight, almost. Well, no, he no? was alive for that. Oh, sorry. Dr. Uh, Parnassus, I think it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. The imaginary yeah. Dr. Parnassus. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same type of principle. Well, yeah, it's like that sort of sense where if somebody's died, their message that they have to say, is particularly if it's related to their own death, becomes that much more poignant. And I right. think now... I don't think Dr. Parnassus was an insight into Heath Ledger's <laughs> death, but yeah, let's... Okay, for, for Yul Brenner it was. For Yul Brenner it was. So now in 2018, it would be pretty hard to find someone that would disagree with you that smoking is bad. Wait, right? the ad was about smoking? Yes, it was a smoking ad. Right, it was and an he anti smoking ad from, from smoking. smoking. Okay, yeah. so, there we go. We've got all the links. All the links. Let me just add this one in here as well. Yeah. So, Yul Brenner, he wasn't just an average smoker. He smoked 
five packs a day. He was a professional smoker. He was a professional yeah. smoker. He could like Indeed. enter the world championships. That's how good he was at smoking <laughs> just cartons of cigarettes. Yeah, so he was he was heavily addicted. Yeah. So now it's obvious that they're, they're very bad for you. Well, yeah, they made a whole movie about thank you for smoking. Actually, that's about PR, not really. That has nothing to do with what you have to say. Anyway. It's obvious that it they're bad, bad for you. Yeah. But if you look back to the 1940s and 50s, you know, we, we'd laugh with shock and amusement that it would even be possible to suggest that a cigarette smoking not only wasn't bad for you, but could be actually good for you. Yeah. You know? yeah. What are the benefits of smoke? I mean, relaxation, I would say, is probably the only benefits that people would currently say today are, uh, are derived from smoking. The rest is, is cancer, which is, which is not a benefit, I'd say, ever. Really? <laughs> no. Well, we'll get, we'll get into the, 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 the specifics of cigarette smoking, but... I think, you know, 1940s and 50s, the point is it's a totally different age. Yeah. The media was totally saturated by cigarette advertising, cartoons, news, talk shows, yeah, comedies, dramas. People were like just sponsored by it as well. Just think about Mad Men, right? That's sort of have that image in your mind. Yeah. Everyone wearing dapper suits, smoking cigarettes. So the universal uptake of smoking during the West. Oh, everyone did it. Yeah, everyone did it. But the, it wasn't an accident that it happened in the 1920s. But it wasn't... Sorry. The widespread... The universal smoking of cigarettes in the 20th century in the West wasn't an accident, just by the same way that it wasn't an accident that in the second half of the 20th century, that numbers declined. There's a complex sort of interplay of coincidence, economics, advertising, and addiction that is responsible for all of that. Right. I think it also has to do with the fact that they're addictive and we live in a capitalist world. So really... Yeah. That's, that also, that's probably a factor. Probably a factor. Huge We're not going to rule it out just yet. It's a possibility. So let's let's look at tobacco itself. So mm. the, it's it's a plant, obviously. Yes, it is. And the core ingredient in cigarettes. And it actually comes from the same family of plants as, as tobacco. <laughs> well, tomatoes actually. Oh, and really? Eggplants. Yeah, really. Because yeah. in the Simpsons episode, of course, they, they make crossbreed with tomatoes. Yeah. maybe that's why it works because right. they're from the same family. It's like when you you mate like a two different puppies, you get a mutt. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. If they're different breeds, obviously. Of course. Yeah. But what makes tobacco unique, right, is the presence of nicotine within its leaves. Nicotine, of course, is the thing that makes tobacco addictive. Yeah. It's why you have nicotine patches nowadays. Yeah. So you smoke tobacco, nicotine is absorbed into your blood, through your lungs, passes through the blood-brain barrier within seconds. It affects your neurochemistry in your brain. It creates that sensation of pleasure, alertness, and relaxation, like we said before. So really, it makes you go, ah. Yeah. And what really makes nicotine addictive is dopamine because it stimulates the release of dopamine within right. your brain. Yeah. Essentially, dopamine tells your body to do something again. Mm -hmm. um, it's released when we have sex, when we eat. These sort of crucial it's things. It's definitely released when I eat. I can tell you that much. Because, <laughs> by God, when I start, I do not stop. <laughs> like, the dopamine's just yeah. going crazy. Your, your brain's like, hey, like, Harry, more please. More please. Do yeah. that again. Keep us alive. Yeah. So nicotine hijacks that system of your brain saying, more please, more please. Yeah, yeah. We're liking this. So can we just clarify quickly yeah. and say that we're not supporting smoking? No, not at all. On this episode, we're just saying why in the 20s people thought it was good. Yeah. Well, why sort of... Well, why anyone would continue smoking in the first place yeah. or even start. And like, why it's why, addictive. Why it's addictive. So before it even came to the West, tobacco originated in the Central Americas. Mm. And it wasn't until really Christopher Columbus arriving in America in 1492 that we start to see the interaction of Europeans with tobacco. Mm. So if we skip to the end of the 17th century, the new world is well and truly discovered 
and you start to see commercially viable tobacco plantations, which would eventually become uh, the cash crop that would support the United States of America. Really? When it starts, well, what would become the United States of America? Yeah, well, I mean, they weren't yeah. there yet, but I didn't realize tobacco was such an important import and export for them. Huge, absolutely huge. The commercial viability that made it possible was largely due to the fact that African slaves were the ones working those plantation fields. So when I think of plantation fields, I think of cotton fields and cotton picking. Mm. That's the stereotype. But really, a lot of it would have been tobacco picking. Yeah, and an enormous part of it. So you, not only with cotton or, sh- or sugar cane, but tobacco made up a huge portion of African slaves, what they were actually doing. Yeah, wow. So we can look to European exploration and trade as being responsible for spreading tobacco across the globe. But it wasn't really until the 20th century that people started smoking cigarettes en masse, Right because there were technological improvements that made cigarettes affordable. They could be produced cheaply, yeah. safety matches were produced so that people could smoke the cigarettes, and uh, modern advertising and public relations hit the ground running, selling them to people, making sure that they would actually light up in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense. When you're putting a f- an open flame to your face, you <laughs> want to make sure that it lights the cigarette opposed to yeah, your, mustache, your face. Which yeah. you've been crafting for many, many oh, years. Yeah. yeah, and back in those days, they they killed Newtown, I'll tell you that much. They were the original <laughs> hipsters, I'll tell you. Like they, their moustaches are just to die for. Really. Indeed, indeed. So World War One actually played a big part in the uptake of cigarette smoking. Tobacco companies actually arranged for American troops to get free cigarettes, many of them smoking for the first time in the trenches, coming back addicted. Ah, that is is a thoughtful company. Yeah. The same thing happened in World War II, and the first year of the war, over 70 million cigarettes were sent out to the Allied forces. Now, speaking of World War II, it was actually the Germans who were first to discover the link between smoking and cancer. Right. Yeah. So thank goodness for World War Two. Otherwise, we <laughs> probably would all be smoking packs of cigarettes a day. <laughs> well, here's the thing: post World War Two, all the research and public health campaigns that the Nazis implemented to reduce the amount of smoking in Germany, they were sort of shunned because anything associated with Nazi Germany post World War Two yeah. was deemed bad. <laughs> this right? is probably one of the few things where people probably should have listened. Probably to should Germany. have paid I don't, attention. I to don't it. say that often or ever. But hey, not smoking is probably a good thing. Yeah, so but by the 1950s, people were starting to wake up to the threats of cigarette smoking. The early 1950s saw some important uh, studies. Sir Richard Dole from England mm. was the British researcher. That's, that's If you're from England, people call you British, right? Um, he was the researcher... Thanks for clarifying that, I was, I'm sure. But yeah, the, the British researcher... <laughs> he helped prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the causal link between smoking and lung cancer. And it would actually be a couple of decades before governments would start to make meaningful change. Age restricting, banning advertisement, uh, restricting public areas where people could smoke, Mm. and educating the public as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in our lifetime, really, you've seen a drastic change in where cigarettes can be smoked, what you know, events they sponsor, and even who really smokes them. Like in movies, even, you wouldn't see them that often. If exactly. Ever. Unless it's like a historical pick. Yeah. And I think in our, our context here in Australia as well, Australia's led the way in a pretty significant way. 2012 saw the plain packaging laws come into effect. Yeah, that's true. With those lovely images that scar you for life. But I think that's their point, really. That's literally the point. So yeah. <laughs> that brings us to our date in history and Mr. Yule Brenner. So... Brennan's ad was powerful, and I, you know, I recommend that you watch it. Um, but it's not the end of the story at all. Okay. People still smoke, 
So numbers have declined in developed nations. With yeah. Education campaigns, restrictions, what have you. Yeah, you see it every day. There's less and less people smoking. Yeah, but in emerging economies, they have huge numbers of smokers, right? In fact, the number of global smokers is increasing. And the yeah, World Health people. Organization estimates that 6 million people die each year from smoking-related diseases. And the number's only got to go up as well. Yeah, it's a wow. huge public I guess, health I guess we don't issue. really think about it. We think in our society, yeah, it, in, in Australia, for example, there's yeah. a lot less smokers. But in reality, that's just not the case because there's so many more because as the population grows in developing countries, you know, you've got China with 1.6 billion, yeah. India with 1.2. In, Indonesia is a huge um, smoking nation as well. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I think Indonesia is where that video is from of a baby that has like 20 two-year-old smoker. Yeah, yeah wow. That is, uh, that's impressive. Yul Brenner would <laughs> not condone that. Not at all. But I think it's food for thought. So it's a huge problem, but... If you are struggling to quit smoking and you're fortunate enough to be listening to this podcast, you're likely living in a nation where there is support for you. I mean, we might have a huge base in developing countries. I hear that South Sudan, they love us there. They absolutely <laughs> adore us. But you're right. I think it, it goes without saying that we should say that you can get support um, and you should get support as well. And there's lots of quit line services too. Yeah. Boom. Public health. Done. <laughs> What? It's August 17, 1980, and Lindy Chamberlain, she sees an animal crawling from her tent. She screams. She chases the animal, but she can't catch it. And inside that animal, she sees an object. Inside the animal? In its teeth. Oh. In its jaws, in its vicious canines. She goes inside her tent, where her baby was sleeping. All there is is a pool of blood. No baby. She storms out of the tent. My baby, my baby, a dingo ate my baby. <laughs> One of the most well-known stories in Australian history, a dingo eating a baby. August 17, 1980 is the day it happens. It's not our day in history, mm. but it is the day that Lindy Chamberlain sees a dingo run off what she can only assume with her baby, Azaria Chamberlain. So this is the event that kicks off everything else. <laughs> it kicks off such a story. Massively. A, a story that spans yeah. 30 years of inquiries, imprisonment, death, divorce. And the and thing is, like, it's engaged the nation's curiosity for the entirety <laughs> of that time as well. Maybe fading out of um, the proper consciousness, but we always know, dingo ate my baby. Of it's course. Always, it's part of the zeitgeist here. There is a a period I'd say between 1995 and 2012 where people forgot about Lindy a little bit and her baby. And I think that's great for her because it's a harrowing story of like a, a dingo killing your baby in mm. the middle of Uluru. Like it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to speak about the case that started it all. And the first ever hearing about Lindy Chamberlain and her, her baby. And it yeah. wasn't just Lindy. I want to clarify. It was yeah, her also husband was her there. husband, yeah. Michael, and they were both charged with the murder of, of this two-month-old baby, right? Okay. So, on this date in history, 17th of August, not our date in history, but on a date in history, she's <laughs> she's she's murdered. A week later, the 24th of August... Murdered? Or... It, or murdered by... This is how she dies. She, she dies. dies. Okay. All murdered by a dingo or murdered by a human. Dingoes have 
intent. Anyway, let's not go into whether or not beasts have intent. Yeah, dingoes have murderous intent. Because I think that's going to go into the whole vegetarian discussion as well, whether they have consciousness. And I don't think it's a place that we're going to go with a murder uh, of a, a small child. Okay, so a child dies. Let's a child dies. A week later, on the 24th of August, her jumpsuit, booties, nappy, and a singlet are found. And they're not found close by. They're found like 400 miles away. They're, fi- they're found quite far away. It's not close. Yeah, that's, that's a huge distance. Right, and... You know, police have already investigated. They've got indigenous elders to come and have a look. And they've seen footprints of a dingo. And they follow the footprints. And obviously, it stops at some point. Yeah. But they follow it for as far as they can. And it looks like, you know, Lindy Chamberlain, she's she's telling the truth. Like, a dingo did come in. So, at baby. this point, all signs point to a dingo has taken Lindy's baby. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no body. There's no motive for the mum who's a caring mum that loves her kid and the dad who's a caring father. There's, you know, she wasn't even in the tent at the time. There's other people around that saw her and everyone, there was actually a few witnesses as well who saw the dingo, heard her screams, you know, all the things that happened. Okay, so things are stacking up in favour of Lindy at this stage. So how did it go south? Uh, Well, I mean, it didn't. So this takes us to February 20, 1981, our date in history, right? Hmm. Where it's found, the first inquest, the hearing that starts it all, the dingo did in fact eat the baby. Miss Chamberlain, Lindy Chamberlain, and her husband Michael cleared of conviction. You did not kill your baby. It was a dingo. Right, okay. So, all good. Story over. Job done. Yeah, not quite. Okay. So, let me start by saying the two different cases that we'll put forward. There was a Crown case and the Chamberlain case. So the Crown case, who were trying to say the Chamberlains did it, they said that Lindy took her baby, took her to the car, used scissors to cut her throat, then hide her either in a camera bag or somewhere in the car, right? Yeah. If you cut someone's throat, a lot of blood goes out. There would have been blood in the car. Yeah, even if it's a small baby, there's like a lot of like liters of liquid inside her. Yeah, exactly. And there was a lot of blood found in the tent. Yeah. Heaps of blood, right? Which went with Lindy Chamberlain's story. The police said that it had to be done with scissors. Lindy had to have killed the baby and she disposed of the clothes and the clothes were obviously cut by scissors, not by a dingo. And that's just the way it is. It comes to 1982, actually, when they want to do a new inquest and charge her again, when they say a forensic scientist looked in the car and found blood. Oh, okay. Which would lead them to think that how would a dingo or why would a dingo bring the baby into the car. Exactly. So this yeah. is the Crown case. It's getting stronger after the first conviction is quashed. Okay. The Chamberlain story never changes. It's the same through and through because that's generally what happens when you're telling the truth. It doesn't change. So their story is, as we said at the beginning, Lindy hears, sees the dingo come out of the tent, starts screaming, there's a dingo... Um, other people hear the sounds of a dingo. There's witnesses that don't even know the Chamberlains that hear the sounds of a dingo. Sure. And basically, she says she follows a dingo, finds blood in the tent, baby's dead. Okay. Right? They had nothing to do with it. It was a dingo that stole the baby. They keep that the whole time. And one of the important bits that Lindy says, Azaria was wearing the jumpsuit, which, of course, was found at the beginning, the booties, other items, but more importantly, a knitted garment. And this is a very important piece of clothing because it wasn't found. The knitted garment wasn't found. And if she was lying about this, what else was she lying about, hey? She was lying about everything because she must be a big old, big old liar. So wait, so they were thinking that because they couldn't find this knitted garment, 
No credibility for Lindy. She just lost all credibility. No, she's a liar because she said there was a garment. But more importantly, it was the blood in the car. Okay. It was twofold, you know, no credibility in blood in the car. So in 1981 on November 20, so this is about oh, 10 months later, you know, nine months really, mm-hmm. a new inquest is ordered and the case is reopened. And on the 13th of September 1982, so nearly a year later, yeah. the second trial begins. October 29, 1982. Now, this is the end of the second case. This is over a year and a half since the first case, since our date in history. And in this case, Lindy is charged with the murder of her daughter. They say the blood in the car must have been from the baby. Also, you're a liar. What you're saying was wrong. You killed the baby. She's convicted of life in prison with no parole. Her wow. husband is convicted for three years for being an accessory to the murder, even though he didn't do it. How anything. do they establish that she was the one that murdered the baby and he he didn't? All circumstantial. I think the issue at this time was that Australia was divided. Yeah. Half of Australia were like, she's innocent. She didn't kill her baby. But the other half that were like, we want to see her convicted. Yeah. She killed her baby. Yeah. We don't stand for this in Australia. Like, we want a conviction. I think that pressure... I mean, it was a very politicised you know, trial. Mm. At the end of the day, yeah. the, po- like the political nature of it got too much and she was she was charged and convicted to life in prison. It's interesting how the, I guess, the collective consciousness of a society can sway a, a ruling like that. I mean, it's ultimately what determines our values. Yeah, but societal but, values do play a big part in the law at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's the hard part to but come to grips how, with. It's interesting how, how, how has that come to terms with the truth, you know, or like... Yeah, well, I mean... There's <laughs> what's a, more important? There's a, a case that you learn at every law school about Andrew Mallard, who was convicted wrongly just because the police wanted a conviction. And after like, oh, it was a long time in prison, they realized, hey, he was telling truth the whole time, wrongly convicted, yeah. and had to like pay him a certain amount of money. But they needed a conviction at the beginning and there was a lot of pressure to find the killer... And so they convicted Mallard and it's similar to this case where they wrongly convicted her mm. and then they convict. So the second case, they convict her. Yeah. She gets sent okay. to jail. She tries to get an appeal to the high court that fails two to three, uh, you know, saying, nah, you're convicted. You're convicted. Yeah. Too okay. bad. Yeah. So then we get to the third inquest. So on February 3rd, 1986, Lindy's been in jail for a bit over three years now. They find the jacket. The missing item. Oh, the knitted that, garment. The knitted garment that had proved ah. that she wasn't credible. They find it saying, hey, it was outside a dingo's den. I hate to say it, but credibility is, is there. She's a credible witness. Okay. And again, pressure is put on and there's a royal commission into the death of Azaria Chamberlain. On June the 2nd, 1987, the royal commission says she is not guilty. Wow. Get her out of prison. Yeah. So she gets released and of course, all convictions should be dropped but they're not dropped until 15th of September, 1988, when the Supreme Court of Darwin says, yep, after the Royal Commission, all the evidence is circumstantial of the police. At the end of the day, the police case was very loose. Yeah. And a lot of it was very circumstantial. So it was pretty hard to prove. Anyway, at the end of the Supreme Court case, they essentially say the Chamberlains are not guilty, but the death of Azaria Chamberlain is still up in the air. It's still open. Then in 1995, it's the third inquest, the third case, reopened, saying, again, neither parent is guilty, but yeah, it is it is yeah. open. We don't know who really killed. So it's now been oh, f- 14 years since the actual death. We've had yeah. three court cases, yeah. 
Two of them have said not guilty. One of them has said guilty. Then everything goes Ooh. quiet for a bit. But then in 2011, for some reason, everyone's like, oh, because it was the 30th year anniversary of Azaria Chamberlain's death. Oh, man. Everyone's like, let's get the witch hunt started again. There's witches in Salem. Let's get the Chamberlains. <laughs> so December 16, 2011, Coroner Elizabeth Morris, she says, we're going to open the case for a whopping fourth time. Let's get ready to rumble. Let's do this. Go through the motions. The fourth inquest happens. Is this because new evidence comes to light? No, there's nothing really that happens. I think there's just a lot of pressure. And also it was open-ended. Like there wasn't a clear like, you're not guilty. And obviously a dingo killed your baby. Yeah. It was, you're not guilty, but we don't really know who killed your baby. Okay. So, and, and the fact that we haven't tied up these loose ends just isn't sitting oh, means, well with people. It means like, it must still be open. At this point, okay. it was like 7 to 37% said she was innocent, 30% that she was still guilty. Anyway, 24th of February, 2012, the fourth inquest begins. Finally, June 12th. This is 31 years after the death of Azaria Chamberlain and 30 years since our date in history, which is her not guilty conviction. Yeah. June 12th, 2012, it is finally stated, a dingo ate the baby. We're done here. Chamberlain's done. free. A dingo <laughs> ate a baby. That's it. And you know what's interesting is that there is actually only one other case, at least noted, where someone has been killed, a nine-year-old called Colin. Uh, in 2001, he was killed by dingoes. There's been attacks in the past, but oh. really, Zaria Chamberlain is the most famous... If only sh- person, really. She's one of two, yeah. really, that have been killed by a dingo. And I, I don't know. I used to love dingoes as a kid. Not a huge fan of culling them. But then again, if they're killing people, they're probably what? not great to have around. What? No, that's, that, is, that is bad logic. Well, I mean, we're also not going to get rid of crocodiles. And I'm pretty sure they kill, at least try to, many people. You've seen all the British tourists get mauled by crocodiles. Well, look, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you're getting your stats from Bob Catter or from a reputable <laughs> yeah. source. Um, Actually, Bob Catter did say something about culling dingoes as well after Zaria Chamberlain. He, he didn't <laughs> of course really, he did. but he could have. He definitely could have. That to me is the same thing as when people say, oh yeah, we need to have a shark cull because people keep, keep getting eaten by sharks. You know what? Don't go swimming in the beach dressed as the biggest, fattest, dumbest seal to a shark. It's like going up into a shark's living room dressed as, like, with an apple in your mouth, saying, don't eat me. I'm sorry, I have zero sympathy for those people. I think where you probably should have finished that sentence is don't go to the beach, because we know your aversion to going to the beach. So I feel like this is a sensitive topic for you. I think a better example would be, I think this case is probably one of the most iconic in Australia's history yet. You know, everyone knows that Dingo Ate My Baby. It's as iconic as... Like Shrimps on the Barbie. Shrimps on the Barbie, Vegemite, you know, the cricket. And nice cold beer. Nice cold beer and Nicole Kidman's plastic surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's more Australian than that. Yes. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, Mr. Muhammad teaches us to love our own kind and let the white man take care of himself. All right, and now it's time for some fast... Facts. Let's start off with mm. February 21, 1965. Ooh. Malcolm X, the infamous and also famous Malcolm X, <laughs> is assassinated. That's right. He's he's killed. Is it possible to be infamous and not also be famous? Um, well, no, but I mean like famous is he might have done some good things too. Yeah, true. He, you know, a bit of bad, a bit of good. Yeah. So Malcolm X, I think most people understand that he was a, a huge figure in the civil rights movement, yeah. right? He helped to 
push that narrative forward and to gain equality for black people in America. But as with most things in life, it's complicated. You get the good with the bad. Very complicated. It was complicated because he was also a bit of a black supremacist and believed that white people were inferior and there should be segregation for the protection of blacks. Yeah. Which... Yeah, take that as you as you will. Let's let's move right on to I something. I think it's pretty clear that's bad. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's move on to something that's less controversial. Uh, staying on this day in history, in 1848, the Communist Manifesto is published, which of course is a lot less controversial than. Oh yeah, everybody loves the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, <laughs> just a great bit of light reading to. You know, lull yourself to sleep before it's actually, going off to work for the, uh, not that the bourgeoisie. Long. It's not that long, <laughs> to be honest. I've, I might have had a little bit of a read of it. Uh, of course, it's written by uh, Karl Marx. Yep. Uh, it's it's an important book for communism because it's... How would you <laughs> it's like, say? It's like the book for communism. Yeah, it's it's pretty much the Bible of communism. It's the founding... Well, when it's, well they don't like religion very much do they so op- opiate of the masses okay commun- well it is point of view, so. great use of quote but yeah. uh it's similar to a bible it's the atheist bible of communism is that better <laughs> is that how we want to say this sure sure okay it's the founding doctrine of communism and communism itself arose as a critique to capitalism yeah essentially it's a society where everyone is equal works equally gets paid equally and lives in like a commune state yeah, the means of production are owned by the state and everything goes towards the betterment of the state. Pretty popular in Russia and China up until always, really. Um, <laughs> poliomyelitis, also known as polio, is caused by the polio virus. Heading now to February 23rd, 1954, the first polio vaccine was given to a child. This is really important because I don't mm. know if you know much about polio, but it I've never had a lot polio, thank God. Because you had the vaccine. Yeah, that's true. Which ironically only came into commercial consumption in 1961. So this kid, super lucky, 1954. This is like seven years before (laughs) everyone else got it. In 1955, people started using the polio vaccine, uh, made, of course, by Albert Sabin. I think some credit needs to go to that kid, the kid who received (laughs) the first vaccine. You'd have to have a lot of confidence in the ability of the geneticist who worked out the vaccine. Yeah. You know, like... Like, what do you say to a kid? Hey, I'm going to inject you with this. You may die or no polio. Either or. What would you like to do? Trust me. Well, either way, we're grateful for both of their contributions. So... (laughs) Thank you, kid, for not dying. And thank you, uh, Albert, for finding the cure to polio. (laughs) And thank you for listening this week. So join us back here next time as... We take you back to a time before you're born.